Welcome to Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self-care in the age of resistance. Today, we're talking about the fourth of the five niyamas, which are the five observances or positive duties that make up one of the eight limbs of yoga, and that is the most math I will ever talk about on this show. So niyamas, along with the yamas, are recommended activities and habits for healthy living, spiritual enlightenment, liberated state of existence. You can think of it as the niyamas are the do's and the yamas are the don'ts, if you want to think about it that way. The five are saucha, which we talked about last month. That was episode 73. Saucha is purity. Santosha, contentment. Tapas, Sanskrit for self-discipline, that was last week, and Svadhyaya, which is self-study, and that's our focus today, and then in the future, we'll discuss Ishvara Pranidhana, which is surrender to a higher source. So for today, we're focusing on Svadhyaya. I'm going to spell it because I love saying that word because it is not like anything in the English language. And it's just fun. And anything with Yaya at the end reminds me of the Yaya Sisterhood, which was, I don't really know. I think it was a movie from my childhood. I don't know much about it. S-V-A-D-H-Y-A-Y-A. It literally means one's own reading or self-study. Patanjali has said, study thyself discover the divine. So practicing self-reflection, observation, and study of the self makes us more aware of the things we do that harm us, makes us more aware of the things that serve us, and brings us in closer contact with, I don't know, whatever you would call our truest self. Svadhyaya also encourages us to further educate ourselves in whatever inspire and fascinates us deepening our own knowledge. So I've talked here before, I think a little bit about the concentration or the focus it may potentially take to even know what your true likes and dislikes are, to even know what truly serves you and what doesn't. We just make so many assumptions. We're moving so fast through life that we do a lot of things and then we may feel one way or the other and we can't necessarily even decipher what it is in life that's causing that feeling. It's like an allergy. You have an allergy and then so we might not know what is causing the allergy and sometimes what can be recommended to determine that is to scale back, eat really simply, and then slowly start adding in one element at a time so that we can even tell in this melange of things in our life what is causing the issue. Same thing happens in life in general. And part of what Svadhyaya does is it helps us get a little quieter and get a little bit more in touch with those elements that fit really well and don't fit really well and just be able to decipher the difference. That's all. There are actually a couple of different definitions of the word. As a tool for memorization, 
Svadhyaya had a specific meaning for Vedic scholars as the principal tool for preserving the Vedas, the scriptures, in an oral form. So oral preservation of the Vedas in their original form for millennia, for a very long time. And it was a formal part of scriptural study that would require repeated recitations of scripture for the purposes of mastering the mantras, the, the scripture itself in a certain format with accurate pronunciation. So before the Vedas were written, they were repeated and passed down generation to generation and taught really specifically. So we've talked a little bit about how Sanskrit language is different than English or another Romance language or Germanic language in that each sound has a specific vibration that is believed to affect the body and the world in a very specific way. So much like if you have gone to church and they recite prayers with a certain intonation, the Vedas were spoken or sung with certain intonation and pronunciation to have greater effect. So the memorization of that, the repetition of that, that's uh, part of what Svadhyaya was specifically for those scholars. And maybe that's part of that particular kind of study that led to another definition of Svadhyaya in one form as being mantra meditation, where certain sounds or words are recited in order to anchor the mind to one thought, which helps draw the focus away from distraction and and outward facing tendencies and bringing the mind inside. But what we're gonna talk about today and focus on mostly is Svadhyaya as a practice of self-reflection, not necessarily study of scripture. It's a study of one's self. So how is that different than navel-gazing and self-absorption? I'll go back to something we touched on last week when we talked about tapas or self-discipline. When we have a goal and we push ourselves toward that goal, that can either be selfish or not, right? Especially if we pursue that goal regardless of cost to self or others. The only real way to distinguish whether that's the height of solipsism or the height of selflessness, is to determine whether that goal is in the service of ego or in the service of eradicating ego. I'd venture to say the same thing holds true with Svadhyaya. Some self-inquiry can be narcissistic, exclusionary of all other things, focused only on oneself. Even if the focus is on one's own inner journey toward liberation, Still, that could be self-ish because it's focused on the aggrandizement of self. It is about self with a focus on ego. But if the same actions are taken to better know the self with the ultimate goal of eradicating self or harmonizing, becoming one with the universe, then those actions or behaviors can be said to be beneficial toward letting go of ego rather than pumping up ego, which is a little tricky because we're all human and we all get caught up in ego. So we may undertake certain practices or habits with the goal of being a better person and then get caught up in the achievement of that goal and the ego attachment to that goal. And then boom, you know, then it, it's, uh, it 
it doesn't count. It's like pride in that way. I was raised, you know, sort of Catholic-ish. And one of the cardinal sins, the deadly sins, is pride. You want to be free of pride. And really, if you think about it, that's a lot like the way we talk about ego in this context. So you might work to be a good person and then you do something good, quote unquote good, and then you're proud of yourself and then bam, you're in the briar patch. It's hubris if you're into Greek mythology or even if you're not. Icarus flew too close to the sun. Tower of Babel, corrupt selfishness. And I think that none of us want to go there. We don't intend to, but sometimes we do. And the whole self-help, self-improvement genre asks us to walk a really fine line. Our community, and by that I mean yoga community, has at some points been guilty of thinking we are better than, in that we are calm and zen and don't get dragged into the mud. But we do. We know that, right? How many gurus need to fall before that's obvious? We have our own Harvey Weinsteins in that regard. And there's a tendency for the culture created by focusing on good vibes only to exclude, you know, all sorts of stuff. I get honestly tired sometimes even thinking about it because I think I talk about it a lot. But not only do we exclude the shadows of ourselves often, but we also exclude real human people, like full whole people who don't fit our idea of what we think this lifestyle should look like whether that's based on race or size or attitude. And if we think we're better than anyone else, then that's pride. That's hubris. That's not enlightenment. So before we fly too close to the sun, I want to pause to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Yoga for the Revolution. If you haven't already, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Overcast, CastBox. You can listen on the web please do rate and review the show. I've been featuring some reviews on our social feed and it's pretty fun. So if you leave a good review, keep your eyes open. Perhaps you will be highlighted. Everyone likes a little light shine on them every now and then. You can see us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yoga for the revolution. Find us on Instagram with the same name or on Twitter at Y underscore F underscore T underscore R. And that's just because yoga for the revolution is a lot of letters and it's too many letters for Twitter. And sometimes it's just too many letters for me to type. As always, you can find all our back episodes and all our future episodes on yogafortherevolution.org. The reason I bring up this pride and ego and judgment in a conversation about Svadhyaya is for a couple of reasons. First off, if we're so focused on ourselves and our own betterment that we become selfish, then end of story. And in order to avoid that, we must, ironically, look inside ourselves. We must question everything, question our motivations, our judgments, our goals, but not with judgment, right? We need to question all of those things with compassion. That is Svadhyaya, self-inquiry. To me, it's the big one, the mother of all the things. Cultivating a relationship of self-inquiry is the only form of spiritual practice I truly, truly know. And then like peppered in moments of pure, non-attached love, which are fleeting and beautiful and real. But this cultivation, this self-inquiry 
is a practice. It's an opportunity. It's the difference between repeating the same habits and behavior over and over or breaking them. All right, couple things. One, let me tell you a thing about Henry James. Two, I'm then going to tell you a thing about Swami Karpalu. In college, I studied turn-of-the-century expatriate dystopian fiction, as you do. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the author Henry James. Henry James wrote The Turn of the Screw, Daisy Miller, Portrait of a Lady, The Golden Bowl. Uh, Not an upbeat, plot-driven kind of author, the first, it has to be the first 20 pages of Portrait of a Lady is spent describing several people sitting on a lawn. It's a bit slow. But for myriad reasons, I got into it. And one of the things I noticed was that there was always a teller of the story, right? Always a stand-in for the reader, a person who didn't really do anything in the story, but stood by and watched all the action happen, gave some judgment, and described it to us, the reader. And in case you haven't read any of those books, it's a narrator, right? It's like, if you remember The Great Gatsby a little bit better, it's like Nick Carraway as the narrator of Great Gatsby. We don't know much about him. He gets involved, but not too involved. And he's mostly just there to tell us the story and to filter things through him to us. And in my college brain, I decided that James used this device, this observer character, as a stand-in for himself. In real life, he didn't marry, he didn't do a lot of things, um, but he had a really rich interior life full of writing and judgment. He once said, the house of fiction has not one window, but a million. And I love this phrase. I don't I don't know why. For me, I translated it not just about fiction, but just about life. To me, as best I can decipher, that meant there are a million ways to look at something. And Henry James spent his life inquiring as to the motivations of other characters, other actors out in the world. And really from then on, I was obsessed, not with James, but with observation. And when I began to study yoga, I found in myself my own little Henry James, my own little chubby watcher, an observer character a part of myself that was not the same part of myself that acted and reacted and had feelings, but a different part of myself that watched it all through a million tiny windows. So this brings us to Swami Kripalu. He was obviously the namesake of the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, really devoted yogi. Obviously, he has a really rich history and lineage, a lot to go into right now. But one of the things he talked about was self-observation. Swami Kripalu taught that all contemplative practices are designed to foster what he called self-observation without judgment, and what Kripalu Yoga refers to as witness consciousness. So let's look at what this is all about. Non-judgmental self-observation. Non-judgmental. Swami Kripalu was very big on compassion. So if we take compassion and turn it back on ourselves, we may start to alleviate judgment and get a closer to enlightenment because judgment really blocks our path. Judgment keeps us stuck. And I don't mean discernment, right? There is a difference between discernment and judgment. 
Judgment adds, not only can I decipher what this is, but I'm going to label it positive or negative. So observe away, observe, observe, observe. But what happens when we observe? Often what comes right after is judgment. I notice these habits about myself and I judge myself. I notice habits of a loved one and I judge them. I notice the behavior and habits of our community, of our community leaders, of our own teachers, and judge all of it. And what can we really do from a place of judgment? How do we then behave? The trouble is, you know, can we think clearly? Can we act clearly from a place of judgment? I don't think so. All we can do when we're in judgment is react and spiral. But if we replace judgment with compassion, then I think there's a chance for some clarity. So how might this work? I can tell you how it works in my life from my personal experience. My observer character is curious, not judgmental at its best, right? On a good day, or at least that's my goal. Let's say I'm in meditation and I'm really distracted, which is not a stretch. My mind is traveling all around and I notice that I'm drifting. Option one, damn it, what is wrong with you? Get back to the breath. Jeez, how much longer till the timer goes off? I did it again. Why can't I just breathe and focus? Option two, I notice that I'm drifting. Huh, I'm really distracted today. Breathe. And if I'm really all over the place, then when the meditation is done and my timer does finally go off, I may choose to take another few minutes. Man, something's really going on in there. What's going on? Parenthetical, I don't always know. And here's the weird secret trick that I do that I'm always a little worried to tell people about because I think they will judge me, but I do it and it works for me. I talk to myself. I talk to myself in a way that no other person really ever talks to me. As if it is a prototypical idealized mom or best friend or favorite babysitter to a kid. I treat my restless mind like a kid and I try not to get mad and grit my teeth and drag it across the street. Instead, I stop my adult mind and crouch down and say, hey, what's going on? You seem pretty upset about something. And I don't, you know, I don't have the whole back and forth. I don't then have a kid voice that says like, well, whatever. But I do ask the question. I ask the question and then I sit and I let anything come up that comes up. And sometimes something does and sometimes something doesn't. Or it comes up later in a quiet moment on a walk or in the shower. But I do ask the question and make some space around allowing for the answer. Because if you use the example of dragging the kid across the street, kids are super inquisitive, right? My brother came over yesterday with the kids and he was telling us that, you know, they wanted to walk the whole way and they wanted to like stop and look at things and touch the sidewalk and like place their hands on the wall and feel the mortar in between the bricks of the building and find a bug. And, you know, they're, they're doing all of that. And sometimes you just need to get somewhere, And so you got to take the kid by the hand and go like, all right, the light is turning. Like we got to go. We're crossing the street. It's not safe for you to like stop in the middle of the street and, and, you know, have a moment with this pebble or whatever it is. That said, I, I can 
think about that the way our adult mind treats our subconscious, right? Like we're so busy. We got to get somewhere. We got to keep going. Go, go, go. We're very, very focused on moving forward all the time. And we're very busy, busy people in our brains and on our to-do lists and on our email and our social. And so the subconscious mind is like, no, I need you to look at something. Look at, you know, and instead of being like, look at this ant and how cool it is crawling around. It's like, look at this whatever, this inner pain or this habit or this thing I noticed, whatever your subconscious is is focused on. And without stopping to ask the question, you know, we may not, we may not hear that right away. So how is this Svadhyaya? To me, that little voice, the kid I'm trying to drag across the street, is my intuition. It's the one that knows something's going on inside but may not be able to articulate it. And the observer, the non-judgmental self-observation is the one that has the option, right? The observer has the option to either drag the kid across the street or to stop and say, hmm, interesting. I'm noticing something here. Let me go in and find out what that's all about. So the mean observer is the one that says you're not good enough, that you'll never learn, that that's stupid, that we have to hurry up, that you're not in line with everyone else, that you can't catch up, that no one should put faith in you or whatever it says. That's not self-study. That's self-flagellation. Non-judgmental self-observation allows you to be curious about your own habits. Curious to inquire with pure interest, pure curiosity about the most mundane things or the biggest, most important things. It could be, wow, whatever someone changes a meeting last minute without telling me, I get really pissed. Interesting, right? Fascinating. If you could look on something like that with pure curiosity and compassion, you have the potential to A, break out of being pissed off about it, right? Because that's something like that. Oh, they don't have turkey at the deli. Like whatever it is, something even that small can sometimes just like roll around in the psyche and gather other complaints about life and really take up a lot of space and momentum and kind of ruin your day. So it could be something small or maybe it's it's something bigger and more important. But it's way more compassionate and allows for actual inquiry when you remove judgment. When you remove judgment, you can find out a hell of a lot more than if you inquire with judgment. Because with judgment, there really isn't inquiry, right? That's just dark room, spotlight, like yelling at someone, torture, you know? And that's not really the kind of relationship you want to cultivate inside yourself with yourself, If you're screaming at another person, what the hell were you thinking? You're not really looking for the inner workings of their emotional motivations. Your goal is to let them know what they did was stupid and wrong and dumb and you're mad about it. On the other hand, if you have an opportunity to approach the same situation with compassion, you might actually discover why something is happening. Why They did what they did. Really, what were they thinking? And that can take place with someone else or inside yourself. You don't think we need to do a little self-reflection 
as a country? We sure do. And personally, my perspective is we're not quite there yet. We're just not. We're pissed and we are judgmental and we are acting from that place. We are acting from the what the hell are you thinking place. And you know what? I get it because I am there. I am in that place. I read what's going on in the news right now and I'm like, you've got to be, there's plenty to be pissed about. And I want to scream at everyone, what the hell were you thinking? I really do. And then sometimes there are all sorts of coping mechanisms that come in with that. I don't read Twitter. I don't want to talk about it. It kind of close off. That's my personal habit. I will say I, I was called out, called out, you know, like in a Facebook post, not to me personally. Someone just said in a Facebook post, there used to be a lot of calls to Congress and there are fewer now because we're freaking tired. And to me, that was a call out to say, just because you're tired of it, it's not good enough. Like that doesn't mean it's done. Just because I'm like emotionally over it doesn't mean that all this stuff is done. So if I want Congress to do something about these really dangerous immigration policies, then I need to call. And I would encourage you and support you in that as well. I know I'm taking a little bit of a detour from self-observation, but it is an observation I made about myself. When I feel threatened and I feel tired, I shut down. That is something I know I do, and I've learned that through self-observation. I had a friend, I was texting with a friend, this is not about politics, it's just something else, and she was like, aren't you having a lot of emotions? Like, I'm having a lot of emotions about this. And I said, I slept for two hours. I took a nap in the middle of the day. That's how I emote. And that's just, you know, through self-observation, not even through Svadhyaya, like the official non-judgmental self-observation, just like through regular life observing, which really is not all that different, is my point. But I know that if I am overwhelmed with emotion, I tend to just close it off, right? So that I don't bubble over. So I am saying I have noticed that habit in myself. And I was reminded that that habit does not serve the greater good all the time. It is a great self-protection defense mechanism. And I appreciate it in so many ways. I do need, however, to be aware that it happens and then choose to heal whatever needs to heal or rest in whatever way I need to rest and then and then actually get up again and make the calls. So if you haven't called your congressperson in a while, I'm going to do it. I recommend you do it too. Okay, I'm going back. I'm going back to what we were talking about. Do we need self-reflection not only as individuals, which we do, but as a community, as a country. Yeah, 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 we do. Are we there yet emotionally? I don't know. I mean, obviously it's not up to just me to decide that. But from what I can see, from what I'm looking around and absorbing, I don't know if we're super compassionate yet. We're pissed, we're judgmental, we're acting from judgment, we're acting from anger. I get it. But I do think that that will only get us so far. I'm not 100% ready for compassionate, non-judgmental observation of the GOP. I'll admit to that. But we need it. Man, if we want to change things, it's not just getting rid of guns. Okay, it is. Yes, we need to... 
look at gun accessibility and availability. Yes, please, let's freaking do that. But we also need to look at what the hell is going on there. Why are people shooting up schools? Who are they? Young, white men raised here. What is that about? We need to look at that with true compassionate inquiry. We need to get curious about that. And I don't, I don't know if we're ready yet to, to ask those questions, to really ask. And we're not ready to have compassion for Weinstein. I'm not. But at some point, we're going to have to look at that kind of behavior as well and ask with non-judgmental observation. So why is this happening? Okay, the answer that comes up is toxic masculinity. But what does that mean? Why is that happening? What do we have in our culture that's building that? What's underneath it? What can we do about it? Yeah, we got to jail a bunch of people. Yeah, we got to... We got to punish what's wrong and we have to allow people to speak up and not be victimized. I, I, we need to do all of that, but we need to ask why also. We need that non-judgmental observation because if we don't do that, if we don't get a few layers deeper, then we'll all just be angry all the time. If we do pass gun laws, then the people with guns who may have to give them up will be pissed. And I don't think much good will come out of that. Look, they're going to be pissed anyway. We're all already pissed. But if we can come at it with some way of alleviating the fear that requires them to own assault rifles, if you can alleviate that fear, then when you get rid of the guns is better. It's just better. If we arrest or punish all men who abuse and harass and good, let's go for it. We should do that. But we'll still have a bunch of men who are angry and feel wronged and are pissed and confused. And again, I don't see how that in the long run, we won't be faced with the same issues over and over and over again. So that's super overwhelming. Even just talking about that, I'm ready for a nap again, but here we go. Let's look for justice, and then also let's look inside. Let's crouch down and look inside the eyes of our bratty, dangerous, misbehaving country and say, hey, buddy, what's really going on here? And we can't do that if we don't already practice on ourselves. So if you're overwhelmed by making the country better and healed like in its heart of hearts because that is overwhelming it is to me then first practice on ourselves wouldn't it be nice wouldn't it be nice to have someone who asked you how you were doing with pure open curiosity and was fascinated by the answer who wanted to make it better who asked the questions that would allow you to come to the conclusions of how to improve your life. That'd be cool. I mean, look, I might not be comfortable having that conversation with someone else, right? If you're a really private person, you might not. Luckily, I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to have that conversation with yourself. Don't be afraid to talk to yourself. The truth is you already talk to yourself. I know that you do. You may not say it out loud, but you have a running tape in your head and it's saying all sorts of stuff and a bunch of it is negative. So you're already halfway there. 
Now just do it intentionally and with compassion. To me, that's what self-study is all about. Way more than studying the scriptures. But yes, if you were called to that, study the Vedas, repeat your mantras. Do it though with awareness. The call here to myself, to you guys, to everyone is wake up to your own inner business. Don't ignore it and stuff it down for the sake of not rocking the boat or only having good vibes. I mean, you know, I screw good vibes only. That's, you know, where I land on that. But see the stuff, dig in, get messy and be compassionate. That's, you know, that's what I say. Okay. Until next time, keep breathing and live to fight another day. You're